Welcome back, bookworms, to the podcast that celebrates everything your book-loving soul desires. I'm Frances Everly, and this is The Bookworm Unleashed. I hope you all had a fantastic summer. Mine was absolutely bananas, and I can't believe it's gone by so fast. I mean, it's incredible that it's already the end of September. It's mind-blowing. Well, I suppose by the time you guys hear this, this it'll be the beginning of October. Um, I have been doing a lot of writing this summer, and I've attended a couple of book signings and <laughs> been working really hard on my next book that's due to come out in January, which is The Pendragon Flame and the second book in the Phoenix Crown Saga. And I'm super excited about all of this. And on top of that, I spent an amazing summer with my kids, camping and just going on various adventures together, including to medieval times in Toronto um, <laughs> to celebrate my birthday, which was the big 4-0. Yeah, I am that many centuries old. <laughs> Please don't come and hate me. I, <laughs> I couldn't resist. I make fun of my husband for being old all the time. And now I'm 40, so he gets to do it back to me. <laughs> it's no fun. Um, <laughs> but it's well-deserved. I have, I have earned the right for people to tell me that I'm old and make old jokes about me. That's because I... I'm very childish and have made quite a few of them myself. <laughs> Not that 40 is old. So please, like I said, don't come hating at me. But I feel old. I feel very old, especially when I look at my young children and I'm like, why did I wait so long to have you? <laughs> I love my kids, don't get me wrong, but I feel very old trying to keep up with them sometimes and all their activities and and on, too on top of that trying to be my own person still with this podcast to explore everything I love about books and you know my writing journey which has been something that I have longed to do since I was a child and I've only just started actually exploring with my first book being published in 2020, <laughs> literally one month before the pandemic shut everything down. Yeah, that was a fun time. <laughs> but, you know, I was able to get lots of writing done in between shifts at the hospital where I work. <laughs> and yeah, lack of motivation has been key to me this summer. Enough about me. Today I am going to explore the queen of romance. We're bringing it down to Lisa Claypass. And we are going to be discussing love in the afternoon. I, I'm going Regency today because I just, I felt the need for a classic Regency romance, I am very eclectic and I am everywhere in my reading choices, just like my music choices and honestly just about everything in my life. It's all eclectic. 
that is me. Maybe a little bit of ADHD in there. Who knows? Who knows? But who doesn't have ADHD this these days? I feel like it's all over everything, including TikTok. Do you have ADHD? You probably have ADHD if you do this and that. And it's just everywhere. So yeah, everybody's got ADHD, especially me. And apparently during this podcast, because I have been everywhere from summer to books to eclecticness and ADHD and mental health. That's I really hope you are laughing at me and my craziness. And now I'm going to get into the book before I go off on some other weird and crazy tangent. And okay, Love in the Afternoon by Lisa Claypass. This book follows the is the fifth book in a series, which I did not know when I picked it up. Um, I have read all the other books in the series, and while I waited for this book to come out, I got very distracted with other things and completely forgot about it. So when I picked it up in the library, I didn't clue in that this was the last book of that series until I started reading it. Now, this series is about the Hathaways. There are about five in total, five siblings, uh, one brother, and I think it's four sisters. Um, It starts with the oldest sister. Possibly the first two books are the oldest sisters. Anyway, they were a lower middle class family, I suppose you could say. I'm not really sure. It's not really clear if they were lower middle class or if they were just kind of middle middle class that had fallen on a bit of hard times. Um, when their father got sick and passed away and things got a lot harder on them when their mother completely shut down on them and then passed away herself and leaving the raising of the youngest children and the support of the youngest children to her oldest children, her oldest daughter, especially became a mother hen to all of the younger siblings And then a huge windfall and surprise came in the um, inheritance, the unexpected inheritance of a title. So their brother became a lord of something or other. And they all inherited this beautiful mansion that nobody had lived in for a very, very, very long time. And so there was a lot of neglect. And as well as that, there was also a lot of financial difficulties that had come with this title. So they now had a home to live in, and they had a little bit of money, but they didn't have a fortune. And so the oldest daughter ended up falling in love and marrying a rich man who was also a gypsy. And because he's a gypsy, he's frowned upon in British society. And (laughs) he, but he's an amazing person. He takes care of the entire family, helps the oldest brother with investments, and just turns their fortunes around. And then his best friend that he sees as a brother who is also a gypsy marries the second daughter and then the brother finds i believe it's a she's a governess he meets a governess and marries her 
And then the third daughter ends up marrying a rich hotelier. So it like their fortunes really changed with this inheritance of a title. And in this book, we come across the youngest Hathaway, um, who is ostensibly the most eccentric of all the Hathaways. This is Beatrix's story. Beatrix was a very young child when her parents passed away, so she doesn't remember too much of them. She's only really seen her sister as a mother figure. She kind of resents her birth mother a little bit because she feels like she abandoned her daughter long before she actually passed away. And in her grief, I would say it sounds like she did. She completely shut down and didn't take care of anybody or anything until she died of a broken heart maybe a month or two later. And it's it's really tragic, the beginnings of this family's story. And Beatrix, to deal with everything that's happened in her childhood, um, developed certain things uh, like kleptomania, which is completely involuntary. She doesn't, she's not stealing things because she wants them. In fact, most of the time, she's not conscious of stealing them until she gets home and finds a random object in her pocket. And then her family goes to all of these great lengths to return these stolen objects to the poor people who um, have found themselves a little bereft. Which I find is amazing that they all come together like this. It's a very close-knit group of siblings. And yeah, it they're all just amazing. Beatrix also is a very empathetic, very nurturing. She and she loves loves animals and wounded creatures and she's got an, <laughs> Here's this word again, eclectic <laughs> assortment of various animals in their on their land. Um she's got a pet hedgehog. <laughs> I think there was a three-legged cat. There's a goat that randomly barges into their house and destroys things. And a wild horse. Like, there's there's so many different animals. She's got a zoo of wounded and unlikely pets. And I, I find her amazing. She's incredible. The things that she's managed to do, she's read so many books on animals and on various ways of caring for them and on their injuries and things like that. And she does not back down from trying to save them. You know, she is, she's not intimidated by an animal that's been poorly tr- mistreated and is now very maybe aggressive towards people and very distrusting. She doesn't back down. She makes this animal trust her. And it's, yeah, she's amazing. And Elisa Claypest did a fantastic job bringing Beatrix to life on the pages. In fact, I want Netflix to make a series about these books, just like they did about the Bridgerton series, because I think these these books deserve it. There's only five of them, but hey, 
Netflix has been known to only do a couple of seasons and then quit, so. <laughs> and it, they also take forever to come up with a season. Okay, back on track. Sorry. Squirrel. <laughs> um, yeah, I should edit it, this stuff out, but I find it all, you know, so much more amusing for you guys as the listeners to hear my weird train of thoughts and my weird little tangents. Beatrix, uh, being the free spirit, you know, she's, she's always held out for love. She wants the sort of love that her older siblings have all been able to enjoy, and she has not found that. And so she's quite content with her animals. You know, she doesn't want to see, she's done her two seasons or three seasons. Nobody has captivated her interest. And she's, she's kind of cool with being, um a spinster until of course her best friend prue starts writing to a certain colonel who is oh sorry not colonel captain who is away in the ukraine of all places battling against the russians (laughs) doesn't that kind of feel like a modern times kind of story but it's not this is completely regency um it's like history is repeating itself almost and so prue is not interested in this captain's letters she's very bored by them and she wasn't gonna bother replying but beatrix being the nurturing soul that she is could not let some poor soldier on far away from home on a distant battlefield not receive a reply to a letter she just could not bear that and so she starts writing to this captain as her friend prue and this reminded me of cyrano and so she eventually through these letters she ends up falling in love with this captain and the more she hears about him, the more they write, the more she falls in love with him. And the harder it is for her to write to him as her friend Prue. Obviously, she wants him to love her. But he thinks it's Prue writing to him. And so he's falling in love with, well, he thinks, Prue. And when he gets back from the war... He is determined to make Prue his wife. (laughs) Can you imagine how pissed he was when she did not remember a single thing that she wrote to him? She knew everything that he'd written to her because Beatrix had given her all of the letters to review. And when he became a very decorated uh, captain for all of his brave actions to hold the line in the war and all of his brave actions to save his men and to say, try and keep his friends alive and passing messages along on the front line and things like that, the more Prue wants him. And yeah, so when he gets back, she wants him. She's read all of Beatrix's uh, letters that Beatrix had replied to, but sorry, all of Christopher's letters that she had replied to, but she did not read 
any of Beatrix's replies. <laughs> and this becomes important because when he realizes that she doesn't know a single thing about what she wrote to him, it's clear that she's not the one who was writing to him. So who was? And he decides to hatch a plan to find the person who did write to him. And when he finds, um, he ends up spending some time in Beatrix's company and realizes the likelihood that it was her that wrote to him from some offhand comments that she's made um, about stars and animals and the way that she is with this dog that he brought home with him, who is quite feral and uncivilized. And he realizes that it must have been her. And he asks his sister-in-law, who was recently widowed um, because his brother passed away from consumption while he was away, which means that he ends up inheriting the property the lands that his brother was set to inherit. So now not only is he very decorated, but he is very rich, which makes him even more desirable in society's eyes. And, <laughs> and um, when she repeats some of the things that she's mentioned in the letter and he confronts his sister-in-law instead of confronting her, his sister-in-law confirms that, yes, she suspected that it was Beatrix writing to him this whole time, but she didn't want to say anything. She couldn't really because she was just too mired in her grief and in nursing his dying brother to really take much notice. But she did advise against him pursuing Prue as a wife. And he takes this knowledge, and instead of confronting Beatrix, he starts courting Prue. And it's driving Beatrix mad, absolutely mad. The more she hears Prue's stories of how dashing he is and how he's asked her, her mother or her father or something like that um, for permission to court her formally, the more that Beatrix becomes sad. She's angry, but she's also very sad because she was hoping in her heart of hearts that he would realize that Prue was not the one that was writing to him the entire time that he was away. And that Prue was not the one that he had been falling for from with every letter, that Prue was not the one who was um, making him fall in love through the written word. It was not Prue. It was Beatrix. And Beatrix is green with envy. But with her general kind nature, her loving nature, she doesn't show it to him. Instead, she pastes a smile on her face and she goes about her day as if nothing is wrong. Nothing is bothering her. And nobody but her and Prue know about those letters. Until Captain Christopher Felon manages to get her to blurt something out that she wrote in a letter. And when she realizes her mistake, she takes 
off. She runs. She's like, she's terrified that he is going to hate her or something like that, but he doesn't. He he finds her and he confronts her and he asks her why she did this and why she wrote to him, why she pretended to be Prue, all of this. And it comes out that she just couldn't bear the thought of him, of nobody writing to him, of him being lonely, far away from home, in a dangerous situation, and has no loved ones to write to him. His brother was dying, and his mother was mired in grief, and his sister-in-law was mired in grief. Um, Probably far too much to write to him. And so, who else would have written to him? She couldn't bear that thought. And she admits that she never intended for those letters to become what they became. They, They were just supposed to be correspondence. And that was it. That was all... And then she admits that she fell in love with him. And she didn't mean to, but she did. And so he starts to court her instead. And he calls everything off with Prue. And Prue is devastated. Devastated that he has called things off with her. And she's blaming Beatrix. And she's pissed. And she's got a right to be pissed because he was courting her quite seriously, and she had every right to believe that he was going to propose by the end of the season. And then he dashed all those hopes. It was kind of cruel. But justifiable slightly, in my opinion. Because, yeah, she only wanted him for his money and for his fame. That was it. She didn't want him. She wanted nothing to do with him, to be honest. She wanted everything else. And he wanted somebody who wanted him, which was Beatrix. And it becomes clearer to him, the more time he spends with her, that she is the one for him. But his experiences on the front line have made him doubt his suitability for marriage. So we have something that we now call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We know a lot of soldiers um, return home suffering from this. Well, during Regency days, there was no name for this. There was no recognized mental health disorder for the people, the men who were suffering from this. So yes, they believe they were going crazy. They were Absolutely uncontrollable rages sometimes, and nobody would talk about it. Mental health is still very much, there's still a huge stigma about it to this day, but even then, it was absolutely taboo to talk about it, especially if you were in the upper classes. And so, even though he's asked his fellow soldiers about it, you know, discreetly, if they've, you know, suffered anything similar, if they know what's happening, he's discreetly discussed it with doctors, nobody's able to give him an answer. And so, because of this, he fears that he's unsuitable for Beatrix. And he drinks too much, and he smokes too much, and he keeps trying to push her away. But then he also can't resist her, so he comes back. And there's a bit of a, quite a push and pull 
going on in his heart. Like, he's trying to push her away, but also pull her closer. She is the only thing, I think, keeping him sane. And it's when he realizes that, that things get really steamy and hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. There's this one scene in this book where right after he finally admits to himself that he's in love with her and he admits it to her um and i think he's a little bit drunk at this point too when she confronts it confronted him about running away from her that um he takes advantage of her and she's very willing so don't get me wrong there is no essay in this there's no trigger warnings but he does take a little bit of an advantage and Because she had stormed into his bedroom while he was drunk, which is very unseemly for a lady of quality in the British society. Um, he, (laughs) he does mean to teach her a lesson and he does. He throws her on the bed and he says some very dirty things to her. And then she's like, yep, I'm ready. I'm willing. And then she flops over onto her stomach on the bed. (laughs) And he's just kind of stunned. He's like, what is happening here? He's like, why are you on your stomach? And she's like, because this is how it's done, isn't it? And he's like, what do you know about the marital bed? And she explains, well, I've seen animals do it. And I've, I've, you know, done quite the study on squirrels. (laughs) and he dies laughing he can't control himself that broke the mood but i think it just made him love her and her innocence all the more like she's comparing the marital bed to the mating of squirrels all things (laughs) she she's on the bed with her ass in the air waiting for him trying to figure out why he's laughing (laughs) I'm still laughing about this, and it's been a couple weeks since I read the book. (laughs) And even though... Okay. (laughs) So he doesn't really explain it to her, but he does do a finger bang on her that makes her go bananas and gives her the hardest orgasm, but also probably the first orgasm. Not probably. He does give her her first orgasm. And it left her reeling and wanting more. And she's kind of turned into a little bit of a a loose woman in her morals here. But only for Christopher. She she's not loose with anybody else, which bravo. Um <laughs> good for her. She she knows what she wants and she's going to get it. And she does. Because after he does that, he realizes that he needs to marry her. Not just because he has now compromised her, but because if he doesn't, he's going to do much worse. And so the only way to save her from his lecherous debauchery is to marry her. And make her his, and then make it okay for him to love her and share bed with her and so when he proposes he does so with one condition though which she doesn't really like at all and this condition is that when they marry they do not sleep in the same bed 
he doesn't want her to suffer from his violent nightmares. He doesn't want to disturb her sleep. He is so sweet and considerate of her. She doesn't really know this, but she suspects that it's something along these lines because of everything that she's witnessed him do, like smashing glasses and things like that. But he's never, he's never been mean to her. He's never, well, besides the whole Prue thing, he's never been uh, nasty. He's never been cruel. And so she knows like there's something going on, but he would never hurt her. In fact, he, he would never hurt anything. He brought home a dog from the war um, that I believe was his friend's dog. And when his friend passed away, he took over the care of this dog. And this dog would not go near anybody else. And so the dog became his best friend and confidant throughout the war. And... You know, a cruel man, a violent man, wouldn't have bothered. And she takes that to heart. And it, she is, she's naive, but she's also very wise in her judgments of people. And so, you know, they, <laughs> they do get married. There's a beautiful ball and a huge breakfast. And then on their wedding night, he takes her um to this secret house in a local earl's uh on a local earl's property who happens to be a friend of both of theirs and <laughs> it's a secret place that only she knew of until she told him in her letters about it and it was one of her favorite places to go to hide away from everything when she needed to it was her secret place. And so he takes her there and surprises her with how he has decorated everything. The room that she had um, declared to be hers, he has had cleaned and furnished with a bed and rugs and candles. And I think there's a table and chairs and there's food and the house is all theirs. And while they're there, like she's amazed that he's done all of this for her for their wedding night. And while they're there, people start singing. And so she goes to the window and it's his fellow soldiers, his friends from the army. They're all outside the window singing to them and then catcalling <laughs> to Captain Phelan. And it's hilarious <laughs> and I think it just made her love him even more if that's possible and Lisa Claypest did an amazing job like I cannot go on enough about these books I really can't and just but just when you think that's the end of the book there's still more because he's still haunted by this one thing that happened while he was fighting this war and that is that he had to make a choice see there was an explosion that got two people um that victimized two people one was his best friend and one was a sergeant who nobody liked 
He was mean and nasty to everybody. Nobody liked him. And when it came down to who he should rescue, he realized that his best friend was likely mortally wounded. That That's what his thought was, was that his friend was mortally wounded, but the sergeant wasn't. So he decided to take the sergeant first. And he carried the sergeant back to base or camp or wherever to get tended to and then went back for his best friend but his best friend had disappeared he assumes captured by the enemy um and he's like but even if he'd been captured he likely didn't live very much long after that because he was so gravely injured but it haunts him because he chose this sergeant um over his best friend and in fact that's one of the um medals for bravery he got was for that particular instance and sorry he hasn't gotten this medal yet but he's going to be rewarded with it by the queen herself and he hates that because he doesn't want to be rewarded for something that for a choice that ended up in the probable capture and the death of his best friend he doesn't want a reward for that who would so he's fighting against that, um, but, you know, he can only fight for so long because it is the queen, and he can't disgrace his family that way. His grandfather's made it very clear that he needs to accept this award from the queen, needs to allow this recognition to happen if he ever wants to have any kind of status within the family. If he wants to inherit the properties that were meant for his brother before he passed away, um, things like that. And so he does agree to it. And after their honeymoon, they return to London. And it's not long after that that he discovers that his best friend didn't die. And so he is confronted by this best friend who is now returned home. And. You know, he's haunted by the fact that he's abandoned his best friend to all of this horrible stuff. But in the end, there there was nothing else he could do. There was nothing left to do. He made a choice and he has to live with it, whether he likes it or not. And Beatrix, you know, she's there. She helps him figure his feelings out and you know, resolves the situation between between him and this best friend. And, yeah, she's just amazing. And I really need to stop saying that because you guys are probably sick of hearing it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. They end at, I believe at Christmas, the book ends. What are they discussing? More animals <laughs> to add to her menagerie. Some wild and exotic creatures. And he's teasing her mercifully, mercilessly. And it's just, it's fabulous. I highly recommend reading it. I recommend reading that whole series because each book is incredibly hot. This one was actually the more innocent of all of them. But still... Very hot. It was a wonderful romance. Very well written. 
And yeah, I thought a perfect start to this new season for the Bookworm Unleashed. I hope you all enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to talking with you next time. And we will be discussing (laughs) a new release that's coming out. There will be, I do have an author interview lined up, as well as a new book box from Bookbox Canada that should be coming very soon and includes a hardcover copy of one of Jennifer Armentrout's books, The Fall of Wrath and Ruin. And yes, I did say in hardcover. So I can't wait to unbox that live with you guys and I can't wait to show you everything on TikTok so that not only do you get to hear about it here you get to see it for yourselves because in my opinion seeing is often believing until next time bookworms keep reading and we'll see you soon on the bookworm unleashed